You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. A happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here this morning, and uh, we can give them a round of applause and thank them for all they do. And uh, we sure have a um, real positive uh, text <laughs> today, um, being sarcastic. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty serious, and this is what we get on Mother's Day. Um, so not all rainbows and, and butterflies today, um, but this is the, the text that the Lord has laid before us this morning as we make our way verse by verse through, through Luke's gospel. And so Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26 is the text and uh, God's certainly going to teach us this morning, and I pray that he will not only teach you, but he'll change your life um, through this particular text, okay? So let's read it, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And he said, and they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able uh, in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. What an incredible text. And I know probably a familiar one for you, at least hearing of some of the aspects of this text is probably familiar to you. Now, let me tell you what is the main point of this literary unit, this section here. Um, what we're seeing in this section are the actions and the hearts of those who are trying to eliminate Christ. We are seeing the heart, the hearts, and we're seeing the actions of those who are attempting to eliminate Christ. That's exactly what's happening in this text. We're watching the hearts. And we're watching the actions of the leaders 
who are rejecting Christ. Um, it, it's pretty simple. It's pretty, pretty plain to see this right here. And so let me tell you the progression of how we got to this place, and then we'll get into it and just start walking straight through it. But if you remember, in Luke chapter 20, just flip back a page, probably in your Bible, to verses 1 through 8, we remember Jesus' authority was challenged there. And we've been really kind of riding a wave since that point, okay? And so Jesus exposes their hearts because they ask, by whose authority are you doing all of these things? You remember this? And Jesus exposes. Here's how he does it. He gives an either or question. And he always uses this tactic, either or questions. The reason why is it forces somebody to commit. It's not, there's no middle ground here. Either commit to the fact that you believe and you'll follow or don't. He gives this either or question. And so they refuse to commit to the truth. They're not going to submit themselves to the truth. And so then Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you the truth. You won't submit to it anyway. And so they were refused to repent and be saved. Um, and, and this is how things are going. And the discussion is revolving around something that Jesus has already made plain. And that is who he is, that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the anointed one, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's come to bring a spiritual salvation, not a national salvation. I mean, all of this has been made clear through his teaching and through his miracles, and they're asking the same questions. They just don't want to believe it. And so then we move on to chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. We're still riding this wave, so to speak. And so Jesus then says, how far these people will go in their rejection of him. How far they'll go in rejecting the truth. Uh, they, they will not only not want the truth because it doesn't give them what they want, which is the inheritance and the control of Israel, by the way. That's what they want. They want the inheritance and the control of Israel, just like many people want the inheritance and control of this life, of your own life, and therefore will reject Christ because of it right? They don't want this God. And so they're rejecting him because they want the inheritance and the control of Israel. Just again, like many want the inheritance and control of this life. They'll reject Christ because of it. And so Jesus is very, knows what's going on in their heart. This is a moral issue. It's not that he's not true. It's just that they don't want him to be true. So we get into this in verses nine through 18. And Jesus is saying, this is how far people will go in order to reject me because they want the inheritance and control of their own lives. And this is how far they'll go. How far will they go? They're going to do what to him? They're going to kill him. They're going to murder him. And he gives this parable of these wicked tenants who kill the son. And yet Jesus finishes that section by saying this. He's saying, you want the inheritance and control, and you're going to eliminate me in order to gain that. But the truth of the matter is, everything's going to be taken away from you. And all that's going to end up uh, for you is judgment. The leadership will go to Christ and the apostles, and that will be the truth. You won't get what you want by rejecting me. And that is true today. You won't get the life that you want by rejecting Christ. And it's only through him that you experience true life. 
So now we get into these verses here, 19 through 26. And some of these phrases are familiar, but the aspect regarding Caesar is not the main point of this section. It's just part of it. So I'll explain it to you when we get there, but that's not the main point of the section, okay? So what we're seeing now in this section is that right in front of their own eyes, they're fulfilling exactly what Jesus had just said. I mean, they're fulfilling exactly what he said. He said, you'll go so far as to kill me in order to get what you want. And now here we go. The process is starting. How dare he say that? Let's kill him. You get the irony? I mean, that's what's, that's what's happening here. They're so blind, they don't even see that they're fulfilling what Jesus had just said. And the evil intent of how far they will go to eliminate, murder, Christ. And so up to this point in salvific history, prophets have come. The son has come. The Messiah is here. He's offering salvation to those who would recognize their sinful condition and their need to be saved. And they're gonna murder him. But not only will they murder him, we will see here, not only is this the progression towards the murder, but we're gonna see here the evil intent of their hearts. We're gonna see what this passage is doing is like opening a door to behind the scenes of those who reject Christ, to those who want him eliminated from their lives and from the world. This is is a behind the scenes look. If you'll notice when we get through this, when we get into this, this is all under the surface until we get to point two. This is all will be under the surface, things you can't see with your own eyes, but things that we're being told about by God. So this is the intention, the heart and the actions of those who are rejecting Christ to eliminate him from their lives in order to have the control and inheritance of their own lives. And so this is pretty relevant for us. And so this is how far people will go when they've made up their own mind and when they have evil intent and they seek to eliminate Jesus as a threat. The world does this right now regarding cancel culture and and various types of, of uh, claims about marriage and, and truth and, and sexuality and, and all of these things. They will go so far as to eliminate the truth of Christ from their lives in order to have what they've always wanted. And so we see this very relevant. Uh, this, this is very relevant to our lives. But let's get into this. And I think we're gonna see um, a lot of things that we, Um, we'll learn here and be changed by. There's gonna be three points as we walk through this. Number one, the motivation, verses 19 through 20. Number two, the manipulation, verses 21 through 22. And then number three, the miscalculation, verses 23 through 26. Motivation, the manipulation, and then the miscalculation. And all of this is a failed attempt to kill Christ. They're gonna eventually kill him. We're in the passion narrative now. We are on a one-way street towards the cross at this point, but um, it's gonna be in his timing, not theirs. And so they're gonna fail here, but we see a lot. 
Let's start with the motivation. Number one, the motivation in verses 19 through 20. Verses 19 through 20. The parallel accounts to this text are in Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. And Mark 12, 13 through 17. Mark 12, 13 through 17. So we're gonna move back and forth a little bit. I won't probably ask you to turn, but I'm gonna pick some from those aspects, from those sections, those accounts and the other synoptics in order to help complete this picture here. So the motivation, let's read verses 19 through 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, I want you to notice here in these first two verses that the conjunctions tell us a lot. They tell us a lot, right? We see, we see like hard turns in this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for, okay, now we got a reason, right? They perceived that he had told this parable to them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, sincere that they might catch him. You see the whole two verses is, all of the, those two verses are positioned like that. We see just various aspects clearly separated in this verse, and they can tell us a lot here. And so we can dissect the evil of their rejection here. So let's dissect this. These sub points won't be up on the screen, but just listen closely. Okay, I'll give you a hint. They all start with the letter I, okay? I did that for you, okay? Just, just, just kidding. Okay, so here we go. Ready? Let's, let's, let's dissect the evil of their rejection. This is their motivation, okay? The first thing that we see, the first two things really, are the intensity and the immediacy of what's going to happen. The intensity and the immediacy in verse, in verse 19a. Verse 19a, the intensity and the immediacy. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. So pretty simple. We see the scribes and the chief priests. The scribes were the experts in the law of Moses. They were experts in the, in the rabbi's tradition, right? Rabbinic traditions. And many of those scribes were Pharisees. And so they wrote the law and then they would be with the people to enforce the law. The Pharisees were kind of the 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 people's uh, leaders, right? Not that they were the people like them, but just that they were among the people. The scribes were a little bit more behind the scenes. They would write the law. The Pharisees would be out enforcing the law. Many of the scribes were Pharisees, and so they would write the law and go out and enforce the law, right? And so then we see in verse 19 that there's also chief what? Priests. These are high-ranking priests, high-ranking priests who also, many of them, were Sadducees. 
So they were high-ranking priests who did a lot of the work regarding the temple. Many of them were Sadducees, meaning this, that they held majority seats in something called the Sanhedrin. So this was political as well as involved in the temple. And so what you have here are law writers, law enforcers. You have uh, people from the leadership of the temple and people in the political realm who would influence Rome on behalf of, of the Jews. And so everything's represented here. We have all of Jerusalem, in a sense, represented at this place. You remember the names, if you're reading along in the book of Acts, Caiaphas and Annas, right? And those were the former high priests, Caiaphas was, and then the captain of the temple, Annas. And so we see this. And then if you go to Matthew's account of this text, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians were the ones who were here. And so the Herodians are Jews who supported the dynasty of, who do you think? Herod. And so this is, this is everyone represented at this point. They would reject what Christ was doing here. And so, and so this, is, this, is, um, this is crazy because all of, this, all of them are coming together against Christ. Now understand this. These guys didn't like each other. They had competing idols to where uh, what one wanted, the other wanted, and so therefore they couldn't get along. But there's one thing that they did get along about, which is what? Their rejection of Christ. And so Matthew's account in Matthew 22 says this, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the what? Herodians. And so there's Pharisees, they're the disciples of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the chief priests, and um, the, the Sanhedrin, and more. And so this is, the, this is beginning to show us the intensity of what's taking place. This is not just some little, uh, little conflict in, the, in, in you know, the corner of a room. This is out front and center with the leadership of the Jews. Mark tells us the same thing. And they had sinful desires because still more about the intensity. They sought, verse 19a, to lay hands on Jesus. What does that mean? Well, this again describes the intensity of their evil hatred against Christ, which is this. It brings us back to the previous section, how far they will go. Remember, they're playing this out. <laughs> and I mean, how blind do you have to be? How dare you say that we'll go that far? And, and then because of that, let's kill him, right? I mean, that, that's, the, um, that's the insanity that we see in the world, isn't it? I, I mean, it just doesn't even make sense. I mean, I could bring up, you know, 15 different topics from those who oppose biblical Christianity. And you'd say, this doesn't make sense, right? They're blind. And this is what's happening here. They want the control and the inheritance of Israel. They're fulfilling Jesus's prophecy right here. It's about them. And, and Jesus is the... Um, 
the object of their wrath. The, the intensity is shown here because it says they sought to, what? Lay hands on him, which means to arrest him. It means to seize him with physical force, right? So we're gonna, we're gonna lay our hands on him and arrest him. This was the first step of the wicked tenants. Remember, they laid their hands on him. In Luke 22, 47 through 53, and um, we see that this will be fulfilled. Just do me a favor, flip in your Bible, just another page ahead to Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. And we see here, just one page, just one page to the right, Luke 22, and we see um, what, what happens here is that they arrest who? Jesus. That's the fulfillment of this. They're seeking to do this. It's not gonna happen here, but it will happen. Turn back. So the intensity of the rejection is hatred and it's idolatry. Um, it's not because Jesus was an imposter. It was because they hated what that meant for their lives. They, want, they had a deep issue of power and control and they wanted to be praised and they had the love of wealth. We're told all of this throughout the gospel. Think about this. You don't have to, to think very hard about what are the causes for someone to reject Christ like this because we've seen it explained over and over again in this gospel that people are lovers of, of wealth and lovers of the praise of man, etc. I mean, we could just go on it. You can identify the reasons why people would reject Christ because they're told to us in this gospel. And so we see all of it, all of this. And so they're going to find a way to mask this in a way that doesn't threaten them in a way that gets Jesus arrested. They're gonna use religious terms. They're gonna try to accuse him of various things, breaking the Sabbath, blasphemy, Etc. And there are two routes to getting Jesus arrested. Two routes. One, get him to be seen as defying Rome. Or secondly, get him to be seen as defying the Jews. Those are the two routes. We need to get him unpopular with the people. And we need to get him as one who is trying to cause a resurgence against Rome. That's what's they're, it's what we're going to see in their plan. This is intense. And James 4 tells us the reason why they're doing this even more clearly. What causes quarrels, James 4? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you do what? Murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And this is what they're seeking, friendship with the world. They want the control and the inheritance of the world. This is their only hope, the world that they would have power in this life, wealth in this life, authority in this life. I mean, how silly do you have to be to ignore the next life in order to have 
everything you want in this life. Right? What, what does it profit a man to gain the whole what? And forfeit his soul. That wouldn't make any sense. Don't do that. And this is what they're doing. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so there, are, there is animosity here. This is how intense it is. But let's look at the immediacy of this. It says they sought to lay hands on him at that very what? At that very hour. This is the only synoptic that tells us this. They are so offended by Jesus and his words and what he just described that they want Jesus gone as soon as possible. They're frantic. They're frantic to get the control of their lives. And you see this. People will get frantic the more that their idols are threatened. They will do whatever it takes. They'll lie. They'll manipulate, they'll gossip, they'll talk behind people's backs, they'll fight, they'll quarrel, they'll murder, right? When they're controlled by their idols. And so at this very hour, this is the motivation. This is the heart of, uh, these are the hearts of those leading. These are the ones that are rejecting Christ. We see the intensity and the immediacy. But the second half of verse 19, we see more, a couple more aspects of motivation. And we see the insult. We see the insult. They sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Why? This is behind the scenes. This is under the surface. Why? For, that's a very important word. Whenever you see that, that's very important because it's connecting us to the preceding verses and connecting us to the, the proceeding verses. For they perceived that he told this parable against who? Them. Why'd they want to arrest him and why'd they want to do it so quick? Because what he just said about them. It's pretty clear. They perceived it was against them. This is the reason. What parable? The parable above that I just described to you, the rejection of Christ, the, the fact that they're gonna murder him, the fact that they'll lose all of their authority. It's gonna be taken away, given to the apostles. Jesus is gonna have the inheritance and the control of Israel, his gospel, and they'll face judgment. It will be taken away from them. They're, they got it and they hear that and it's so insulting to their pride and to their lives and to their idols that now they're going to react to it and they're going to kill him because they're insulted. This is how far they'll go. This is the reason. This is the intensity. This is the immediacy. And can I just tell you that really this insult, insult is really just pride. That's what it is. They're proud. How dare he? How dare he talk about me like that? This is pride. It's more than hurt feelings. It's I deserve. It's I'm going to get what I want some way. It's how dare someone stop me from having what I want. It's, I'll do whatever it takes to get the sin that I so desire. 
I'll manipulate, I'll eliminate. And there in this point is no humble assessment of the truth. There's no humble assessment of the truth here. Wait a second, let me stop and let me ask myself, is he really the Christ? Will I be punished for rejecting him? Is this judgment true? Will I face having everything taken away from me because of my rejection? Am I going this far as to murder the son of God because he's not what I want? There's no stopping and humbly assessing the truth. There's just reaction of pride and rejection. And that's what will get you in a very dangerous place. Not only in sin, but for many sent to hell because of their failure to stop and humbly consider whether or not they're rejecting what's true. And so we see this prideful presupposition take place. It's just presupposed that they're right. And it's, this is a threat to me. I should get what I want. But there's conflicting idols here because we see next idolatry in the sense that they are fearing the people. So there is there's intensity, immediacy, insult, and now here there's idolatry. And idolatry of who? It's the people. It says, but they feared the people. They wanted to do all this. They were insulted and yet they didn't do any of it yet and didn't know how to go about it because of their idolatry of people. They feared people. Anytime you fear someone more than you fear God, that's idolatry. And so many reasons why people don't stand with the word of God or don't submit to the truth of God is because they fear people more than they feel the word. And oftentimes people will say, well, you're just being divisive or you're just being, you know, you, you name it. And you're saying, no, I fear God more than I fear man. Fearing God more than you fear man will cause you to make the right decision. Fearing man more than you fear God will cause you to make the wrong decision. And so they're making the wrong decision because they fear the wrong person. And so they fear man so they didn't lay their hands on him. They couldn't seize him. They couldn't move fast, not publicly at least. And they had to make a manipulation of the situation so that it doesn't seem self-serving while at the same time getting them to offend Rome, getting him to offend Rome, and at the same time lose popularity among the people. I mean, this is manipulation at its finest. They can't do this because they need to eliminate Christ, maintain favor among the people, and get him accused in Rome. I mean, they're working all things, and who's at the center? Who's at the center? Themselves. Themselves. I'm going to work and orchestrate this whole thing to get him to offend Rome, offend the Jewish people. We're going to look like we didn't do anything involving this whole, 
you know, situation. And we're gonna stay in the favor with the people and in favor with those in Rome. And yet Jesus will be eliminated. We'll get everything we want. So though they understood the parable was against them, though he accused them, though they could have seen the truth, all they wanna do is eliminate Jesus who threatens their lives. And this is self-serving. And at this point, people still have a high esteem of Jesus. They, they don't, all of them believe in the way that um, we would expect for them to have salvation, but they have a high esteem of him. And so they don't want to be um, accused by the people. Matthew 21, 46 says, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him in what? They held him to be a prophet. In other translations, it says they held him in high esteem or in other places. So they have competing idols, how to keep both themselves positioned and yet not, and not lose the respect of the people, the praise of the people, the power that is given to them by Rome and also eliminate Jesus at the same time. Matthew 23 tells us they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. They love working for, the, for an organization that gives them power. They like being around the, the high ups so they can seem to have power. The whole time their hearts are off and they're not right with God. And they're conspiring evil on a regular basis and they're just not honest with themselves. And so they have the best seats in the synagogues. That's what they want. The greetings in the marketplaces. That's what they want. They love to be called rabbi by others. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus tells a lot about how they are using their religion to be seen by others. They didn't truly care for the people. They wanted something from the people. The people were a means to their end. Rome was a means to their end. They were like chameleons. They just adjust based on the surroundings, on the circumstances. They endure for their own survival. This is idolatry in the most evil way possible. They need people's praises. And so all of this is hypocrisy. It's cleansing the outside and having a dirty inside, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and other things. That's hypocrisy. The definition of hypocrisy is the outside is clean, the inside is dirty, right? This is what's happening here. And so they just want to be seen by the people, eliminate Jesus. Now we move on to verse 20 and we see here that there is more to this. And um, they, they're wanting control. They're, they're, they don't want the riots to take place because the riots will, will cause them to be guilty and, and have trouble on their hands. And so they're doing all of this in secrecy. And so what they did in verse 20 is we see that they're also insincere, insincere. They're in, we see the intensity, we see the immediacy, we see the insult, we see the idolatry and now we see the insincerity. So what they did was they watched, they watched and watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. 
to, who pretended to be sincere. So look at that word there, verse 20. That's a beautiful word, the word so, right? It's wonderful because we, we know what it does. It's connecting us. This action is as a result of what just took place. They feared the people, so now they're doing something in order to accommodate that idol. So here's what they're going to do. They're offended, but they have to manipulate the situation. So they, they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be what? Sincere. This is trickery. This is premeditated. Uh, this is pretend. This is intentional. This is evil. The, these are people. They don't want to be seen as, as enemies. They, wanna, they don't want it to fall back being their fault. And so they're pretending. They're acting. They're lying. They're pretending to be sincere. These Pharisees and Herodians. And the word here is the spies are literally those who lie in wait. Job uses this word here as stalking an enticing woman. Or Job uses it again as an army stalking a city. They were stalking Jesus. They were stalking him, looking for a time. They pretended to be righteous. They pretended to genuinely desire to learn the Messiah's ways. They were genuinely trying, they, they were ingenuinely trying to show uh, sincerity, sincerity while the whole time they're trying to undermine this this whole thing, this is a conspiracy. And so it's them who are saying, we want to learn the way of God. We, we want to honor God. We, want, we just want to learn the truth. We want to follow you. And yet the whole time, the whole time, they are pretending. And so now we see... Two more here in verse 20, we see that they are intentional. They are intentional. So they pretended, they sent spies to these fake uh, uh, disciples of Herodians and Pharisees, and they pretended to be sincere. They wanted, they pretended to be righteous or those wanting righteousness. And here's the purpose that they might do what? What? Catch him. And something he said. So let me just tell you this. Just follow along with me here. This is underhanded. Jesus can't win here. True manipulators will, will, will get you into a situation where they know you can't win. If you say one thing, you lose. If you say another thing, you lose. And if you accuse them of, your, of their manipulation, then you lose again. Right? Because if you accuse them of their manipulation, then they'll use that against you. And so that's how manipulation works. It's a brilliant plan. They're going to use his words against him. They want Jesus' reply to discredit him as the possibility, uh, the possibility of being the Messiah. If you say pay taxes to Caesar, then you're building Rome's empire. You can't be the Messiah because the Messiah has come to crush Rome and bring about Israel's headship. And if you say don't pay your taxes to Caesar, then you, you are... Uh, refusing to submit to Rome. We're going to go tell Rome and they're going to come and take you away. And so this is just manipulation. It's a brilliant plan, but it doesn't work. 
It doesn't work because Jesus is in control here. And so they're gonna lie even about his answer. Listen to this. Listen to how manipulative this is. Stay with me here. If you say one thing, you lose. If you say another thing, you lose. If you accuse them of being manipulative, then you lose. But if you do everything right, they're still gonna get him. How? They'll just lie. Luke 23, look at this. This is before Pilate. Two chapters ahead of where we are. Three chapters. It's gonna be on the screen. They began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's not what Jesus says. And so this is, they're just gonna lie about it in a few chapters. They're just gonna lie about it. Twist, wait for him to mess up. If he says everything right, let's just lie. And so we see the last part of verse 20, 20C, is that this is incessant. This is incessant. They said this so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They're going to get him where he needs to get to. They are going to make sure that he gets to the exact place he needs to get to in order to be killed, murdered. Where is that? It's the governor's authority and jurisdiction, the authority of the one who has the power to sentence him to death. They are, in, they are moving in a direction and they will not stop until he gets in this path to the governor because he has the power and the permission to get him killed. Who's the governor? Who is it? Pilate, it's Pilate. They're gonna, they're gonna do whatever they can to get him there, to arrest him, to get him in Rome's hands, to get him murdered. And all of this, if you notice, is under the surface. This is all under the surface. The scribes and Pharisees, look at this, just verse 19. They sought. This is the intention of them. They perceived. This is their intention. They feared. This is their intention. They watched. This is their intention. They pretended. This is their intention that to, to do something, deliver him. I mean, this all is behind the doors. You can't see this in rejectors of Christ. You can't see this. This is all inside. This is all in the heart. This is all in the intention. And so Luke here is giving us what is, can only come by divine inspiration, which is a window into the heart and intentions of these people. So we've looked under the surface. Let's move now. That was a, kind of the lengthy part. Let's move now to the manipulation. This is easy, but it's very, very helpful and informative. Verses 21 through 22, number two, we see the manipulation. Here's how all of this evil plays out. All of this evil intent, here's how it plays out. Verse 22, here's what they do in order, I'm sorry, verse 21, here's what they do in order to, to make all of this come to place, uh, come to pass. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. 
Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's the manipulation right there. So, right, uh, we see this. Here's the intention. There's the motive. We've set the motive. It's important. We know why they're asking this, right? It is clear from what we just read here that they are not sincere in their compliments or their words here or their comments or their question, right? Though the words might seem true at face value, which is ironic because these words are true. I'm just gonna show you in just a minute, but they're not sincere. We've already established that. And these conjunctions help us to connect all of it in a line as to say that this is, that we've already been informed about the, 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 the previous information to get now to where we are. This is not sincere. We already know that. The intention is to arrest. This is insincere. This is flattery. This is a method, right? How do they start? They say, verse 21, teacher, teacher. This is a respectful title for the rabbis. And then they say three aspects of his teaching. And I just want to kind of touch on them very briefly. I won't say much, but they say three aspects. Look at this in verse 21. Teacher, here it is. We know that you speak and teach what? Rightly. Number two, you show no partiality. Number three, but truly teach the way of God. Now, all of these things are true, but here's what they're saying in this. Number one, you speak and teach rightly. And here's the, interpret- here's the literal translation of this. You cut it straight. You cut it straight. It's the same that's used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of, of God or the word of truth. That, that there is, is the, the word means to cut straight, accurately handling. It's when Paul, he was a tent maker, right? And he had to cut all these pieces of cloth and put it all together so that all, the, all of the angles would mesh right. And if the angles didn't mesh right, the whole thing wasn't right. And so that's what poor interpretation of the scripture does. It doesn't, you can, it's off, it doesn't mesh with the rest of the revelation of God. It, it takes certain doctrines and takes them out and, and the cut isn't right. And so it makes everything distorted because you have certain doctrines that are being taught wrong, right? And so what is happening here is they're saying, you teach accurately, you cut it straight. All of this is coming together. Now they're, they're flattering him, but what they're saying is true. You need to be people who cut the word of God straight. The whole thing's gotta fit together. And if you make something say what you want it to say, you're gonna take this whole thing and make it not fit together right. And so they're talking here about the accuracy of Jesus's teaching. Secondly, stay with me. They're also saying you're not afraid to challenge anybody. You cut it straight, you teach accurately, and you're not afraid to challenge anybody. You see what they're doing here? This is very manipulative, but it's true. Right? They say you show no partiality. What this means here is to raise face or accept with favor. It's it's meaning value acceptance from a certain party so bad that you won't challenge with the truth. That's the idea here, right? It's to you won't say what's true, 
right? This is the idea. You, I mean, you will say what's true no matter the situation. It's to raise face, to put on a face, right? To um, accept favor, to value acceptance from one over another, right? And um, so they're saying this. They're saying, you're not afraid to challenge Jewish authority. You're not afraid to challenge Rome. You teach the way of God. You're not afraid, right? And this was true. He would challenge everybody with the truth. Accurate. And they're saying, you won't be afraid to catch, to, to challenge anybody. And they want him to challenge so they can catch him. The third way is you teach the way to be right with God. They say this in verse 21, you truly teach the way of God, meaning this. This is what it is described in other places in scripture as the way, the, the, the way to become a Christian. This is salvation. You teach truly salvation. You teach how to be right with God. The irony is all of these things are true about Jesus's teaching. It's accurate. It's unafraid to challenge. It doesn't, ex- it doesn't want certain groups to accept him more than it wants other groups to accept him as to change his message based on the listeners. This is, and he teaches how to, how to be right. Matthew 22 tells us the same thing. They sent their disciples to him along with Herod, uh, the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. Truthfully, you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by opponents or appearances, right? That's what it is. And by the way, isn't it crazy how much appearance will sway you? Because someone might be good looking or someone might be seem wealthy or someone might seem powerful. You value so much what you see with your eyes, but God said he looks at the what? Heart. But this is what they're saying to Jesus. You don't, you're not swayed by appearances. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're gonna teach the truth. You're gonna cut it accurately and you teach the right way to salvation, right? This is all true. Now stay with me here. Listen, this is important. He never adjusted his message. He didn't care about the opinion. He taught the way to salvation. But listen, listen very, very closely now. Listen now. This is all flattery. The reason why they're doing it is fat flattery. And let me explain to you how flattery works. Because there's a lot of people who are very good at flattery. Let me explain to you how this works. Flattery, they thought Jesus was just like them. They thought that he was proud like them. So if you give him a compliment, he will seek first and foremost as his primary um, prerogative to justify that compliment. Think about this now. Flattery works like this. You give someone a compliment so that their goal is to justify your compliment to make sure that what you said of them seems to and continues to be true. And so Jesus will do what they're saying. It's a control tactic. Jesus will do what they're saying if they say certain things as a compliment towards him. So they're gonna say something truthful and he's gonna try to, they think that he will be, he will try to justify their compliment, keep them feeling that way about them. You certainly don't want to disappoint someone if that's how they already feel about you. You have whole people and cultures that are based on this control tactic, flattery. You're great. Man, you did so awesome. Man, you did such a great job. 
man, you're so good at this. You're wonderful. And what's your response? Whoa, I'm gonna keep doing that to justify their compliment. And so that's a control tactic. This is what they're doing to Jesus. This is not sincere, this is manipulation. They're going to trap him. And also, let me tell you that this is flattery in the sense that he think, they think that he feels the same way that they do, right? He'll agree with them. He'll agree with them. And so he'll try to be proud and not contradict their compliment. And so they ask him a question. This is flattery. This is flattery. The question is this, verse 22, look at this. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? I mean, think about this. We just said that you speak the truth. You're not afraid to, to contradict anybody. You teach the right way to God. So now answer this question, right? And they want Jesus to go full bore towards Rome and, and against the Jews here as to fulfill their compliment towards him. That's flattery. Oh yeah, they say I teach the word rightly. I'm true, I'm accurate. And so let me now do that to show them that they're right about me, right? That's how flattery works. Thank you for the agreement. That's how flattery works. Some people make their whole lives, culture, church culture, friend culture, built on flattery. It's a control tactic. It's a control tactic. I wish I could say more about that. We just don't have the time. So they say this, then they ask this question. And this is pretty straightforward at this point. What they say in verse 22 is, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's a pretty clear question. Do we have to take, pay the poll tax directly to Rome or not pay the poll tax directly to Rome, to Caesar? Caesar at this time was Tiberius. And um, this is an easy answer. I mean, it's just an easy answer, right? Romans 13, you can spend some time there and I'll just give you a straightforward answer. Pay your what? Taxes. Submit to the authorities. God has providentially put them in place, whether they're good or evil. And, and they're in place for a reason, not because they're spiritual necessarily, but because they protect the weak, they punish the evil, and, um, and they set policy and organization, plain and simple. But that has nothing to do with your following of God, right? Except that you would submit to it. So they ask this question. They're asking, is it legal? This is a legal question. Is it legal for us to, right, do this? This is, is illegal. Is it, is it according to God's law? Listen now, we got five minutes left. Stay with me. Is it according to God's law? Is this right for us to pay taxes to a foreign power, a Gentile? If you say yes, you're clearly not the Messiah because why would we try to build power, uh, the power of Rome? Why would we try to build him, them up? You're the Christ. You're, our understanding of the Old Testament is that you've come to overthrow Rome, right? So, so what are you gonna say? Well, if you also say that, uh, no, don't pay Rome, 
right? If you say, don't pay Rome, Rome's coming after you. If you say, yes, do pay Rome, you're not the Messiah. And so they thought there is no way he answers this right. It's an impossible situation. They're using the same tactic that he used on them, an either or, a this or that. He has to commit to one way. Tell me which way right now. This is, this is the way to trap him, right? We're going to ask you an either or question. You tell us. And we're going to get you on one side or the other. You're, there's no way you're getting out of this situation. You're either going to be, uh, we're going to take step one and get you unpopular with Rome, or, or we're going to take the other step one and get you unpopular with the Jews, right? All of its manipulation, flattery, the evil intent here. And now we see number three here in this passage, the miscalculation, verses 23 through 26. Verses 23 through 26, the miscalculation. They fail here miserably, and Jesus is in control. But he perceived their craftiness, said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became what? Silent. This is pretty clear. He perceived their answer. He knows their craftiness. He knows their deceit. He knows their insincerity. He knows their hypocrisy. Matthew you know, 22 says this in, in the account there. It says, why do you test me? That's what he says back. He doesn't succumb to their flattery. He just sticks to the truth. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Can you do that? If somebody flatters you, can you stick to the truth? Because that's what it's going to take just as much as when somebody persecutes you, can you stick to the truth? When somebody flatters you, you're, you're just great. You know, will you stick to the truth and, and risk disappointing their flattery? Or will you succumb to that? Jesus here is just steadfast. He just speaks the truth. This is amazing. He says to them in verse 24, show me the denarius. I mean, this is a basic silver coin. It has the imprint of the emperor. It, it, Matthew says it's used for tax. It has the image of Tiberius. It's one day's wage for a Roman soldier. We've seen that in other places. On the one side of the coin, it has a face of, uh, of the, um, the emperor. And on the other side of the coin, it has him sitting on, on a throne. And so this would offend the Jews because this would, they say, broke, break the second commandment in Exodus 20. And so the words on the coin would say, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus, right? The, 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 this, is, this is indeed idolatry. And yet here they know that they have the opportunity to trick it, trick Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus says this, tell me whose likeness and inscription is on this. And Jesus says the obvious answer, whose inscription's on it? Or they answer the obvious answer. What is it? Caesar's. And so how profound is this next statement? Listen now, listen. Don't miss the profundity of this next statement simply because it's stated simply, <laughs> right? It's stated simply, but it, it is very profound. What Jesus says next is this in verse 25. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Simple. Paying taxes doesn't negate devotion to God, right? It doesn't contradict the messianic kingdom. They thought that it did because their idea of the kingdom was physical and earthly. He says, pay your taxes, but who are you primarily devoted to? Who? 
God. Very simple, right? God has put these people in place to, to defend the weak, to, to punish those who are evil, to set up policy. But if ever anyone in authority or government would cause you to disobey what God has clearly set up or to do what God has clearly prevented or prohibited, then that's when you would disobey the leadership, right? Other than that, submit. But who do you ultimately submit to? God. So pay your taxes and follow his word. This is what Jesus is saying. This is pretty simple, right? This is pretty simple. Your whole life, your primary allegiance is to God. Your primary love is for God. Your primary devotion is to God. Your spiritual obligation is to God. You might have to make some material obligations in this world, but your primary faithfulness is to God. And so God is the one you ultimately answer to. God is the one that you ultimately follow. Acts 4 and Acts 5, you can see 419 and 529 if you want to see an example of someone disobeying the authorities because it violated the word of God. Acts 419 and 529. So this is pretty simple. At the end here, verse 26, is that their response to him is shown here. And so they say this, it says this in verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to do what? To do what? Catch him. They can't get him this time, but they're gonna get him soon. And so they marveled, meaning they were just astounded at what he said. They were dumbfounded. And so they remained what? Silent. The plan failed. The plan failed. The plan failed and the plans won't change here. This is Jesus, the son of God. He will, be, um, he will be turned over. Listen, listen, he will be killed. He will be turned over, but it's not gonna be in their timing. It's gonna be in what? His timing. And they have evil intent. They're fulfilling the fact that they just don't want it to be true. They'll go far as far as murdering him. We see all this evil intent. And yet Jesus is in control. His plans won't be thwarted. And, and they're gonna see uh, that they'll face judgment um, because of this. What they should be focusing on, listen, is not the situation with Caesar, but upon Christ. And so let me just encourage you with this as we close. If you notice any of these tendencies in your heart, my encouragement to you is to repent. Repent. Because this sin is not just something that um, affects you. It affects others and it's a rejection of Christ and his truth and his word. This is not just a character flaw. This is sin. And it's a rejection of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we come with a very, very heavy hearts because of the seriousness of this text. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to 
think about this deeply and to be changed by your word here. We need you. And um, we pray that we would be people who submit ourselves to you as the Lord, not who reject you in order to have our own lives. This whole narrative from the passion narratives starting a chapter or two ago is just serious. And we're gonna see this all the way to the end till the crucifixion. Help us to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.